We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Transformative Principle, Episode 72 with Ann Benninghoff. Today I'm going to continue my conversation with Ann Benninghoff and we're going to talk about some really great stuff. We're going to talk about tapping into teachers' unique skill sets for co-teaching. We're going to talk about one-minute formative assessments and then the nine models of co-teaching and how to help make that a really effective time. Thanks for listening. Please, if you wouldn't mind, take a moment and leave me a rating on this podcast in iTunes. That's how we help other people know that this podcast exists. And if it's helping you, I'd really love it if you took a minute to leave a rating there. The podcast today is brought to you by Simple School Sites. Go to jethrojones.com slash simple school sites to sign up for the mailing list so that you can be notified when Simple School Sites is live. It's going to take a new approach to uh, providing websites to schools and we'll make them beautiful, interactive, and have great social media integration, and I hope that you uh, will take a minute and sign up for that. So we've talked a lot about the the adult part of it, of of setting things up and, and having the right people in the right partnerships and having common planning time. Let's talk a little bit now about um, about how we set it up and meeting the needs of the students. So you've you've talked about the um, duet model, and so let's talk about what how it looks in a classroom with the two teachers in there. What is what is the important thing that they need to be focusing on, and and how do they set up that general classroom time together? Every partnership is going to be a little bit different, and every day is going to be a little different, depending upon what the needs of the students are and the learning targets for the day. 
so it's we, we have to keep in mind first that there's just that flexibility, whatever you envision, recognizing that it's going to morph a little bit from day to day into different variations. Uh, one of the structures that I like as a co-teacher and I like to see with brand new co-teachers perhaps, um, I always like for the specialist to take responsibility for the first couple of minutes of a lesson. The hook, the bell ringer, the activator, whatever you want to call that opening piece. I think that's a great place for a specialist to take a lead for two reasons. First of all, it puts the specialist on the stage as a teacher from the first moment of class. It makes a clear statement to the students that the specialist is a teacher in the room. They are not there as just a helper or an aide. Mm-hmm. And it, it also makes that message clear to the general ed teacher if that hasn't been clear so far. But the second reason I think that's a great place for myself as a specialist to take the lead is that I have extra training in things like activating prior knowledge, grabbing attention, previewing vocabulary or text. All of those learning strategies are things that I have extra training in as a specialist. So it only makes sense that that would be a great place to tap into my skill set. And what we want the teams doing is constantly making sure that they are tapping into the unique skill set that's brought by both teachers to the class. So while I'm maybe leading those first couple of minutes, the gen ed teacher might be collecting um, homework, checking attendance, supporting what I'm doing by jumping in and asking questions or, or whatever that might be. And then after those first couple of minutes are done, we might flip to the general education teacher leading a mini lesson of some kind bringing in their content expertise and perhaps doing a brief lecture or some kind of um, organized discussion with students. And while my colleague is doing that, I could be on the board capturing the points that he is making or students are making in some kind of a thinking map or graphic organizer. I might be showing good note-taking skills depending upon the age of the students or jumping in and clarifying, adding examples, that type of um, interaction while the gen ed teacher is leading a lecture. Let's say that takes maybe 10 minutes. At that point, we're going to hopefully have some kind of formative assessment ready to go to have a sense of what kids need next. And then as soon as that quick one-minute formative assessment is done, we're going to break students into groups. And that could be two groups. It could be three or four It's going to vary, and the composition of those groups is going to vary, too. They might be homogeneous in terms of ability or skill-based for that particular lesson. They could be heterogeneous groups if we've decided we want mixed ability pairs or trios or or fours so that they can support each other. Um, We'll have decided that probably in advance, but we might decide that on the spot. And then one of us is going to monitor one or two groups while the other monitors and works with one or two groups. And we'll do group work for the significant portion of the rest of the lesson. We actually recommend that co-teachers in co-taught classrooms, um, that probably about 65% of the class time should be in other than whole group arrangements so that we can really provide 
some more intense direct instruction to the kids who need it the most. And then what I like is for the last couple of minutes of class to bring the whole class back together and for the specialist to take the lead again in that last minute or two because this is where we're doing our closure. We're summarizing, we're reviewing, we're, we have an opportunity to hit one last time what that key learning target was for the day. And most specialists have extra training in memory strategies, review strategies, summarization strategies, all of those things. So it's a great place to tap into my um, expertise as a learning strategist. So that's how it, it might look. That's one example, but of course it's going to vary from that. Mm -hmm. Well, what I like there is that you gave a really good outline of what an ideal lesson could look like. And um, wrapping your head around that um, makes it, for me at least, makes it feel much more doable when I look at it from that perspective. Um, and that idea of 65% of the class time is spent in something other than uh, whole group work. I like that idea. One of the problems I see with that is then doesn't that just become a, um, a a time for the special ed teacher to work with the special ed students and the general ed teacher to work with the general ed students? Um, how do you prevent it from just being, okay, we're in the same room now, but we're still just teaching our own students? Um there are times when it may be appropriate for the special ed teacher to be working just with some students with IEPs. We wouldn't want to see that every day, but there may be times those students have been identified as having some intense, unique needs, mm -hmm. and it could be that based on the formative assessment, when we look at all the kids, that there are just a couple of kids with IEPs that need something extra and intense, and so we might pull them off to the side in the room while in one group while there are three or four other groups going on. And, and that might happen occasionally, and I don't want to say that there's no value in that. But often what we find through our formative assessment is that we have some students who have IEPs who got it. They understood the instruction and are ready to be in a different type of group. And we have some kids who aren't on IEPs <laughs> that didn't get it. Um, sometimes we're surprised by our what we might think of as our high flyers or kids who seem always ready for the next level, that for that particular skill or lesson, they didn't understand it. And so let's pull them into that group. So usually if we're breaking into groups and we do them ability-based, we're probably not going to just have a small group with just kids with IEPs. There's probably mm -hmm. going to be some mixture in that no matter what. But again, we don't always do ability grouping. Sometimes it's ability grouping for that lesson, but much of the time it's going to be mixed uh, ability groups so that kids can support each other. Um, when we do a, a parallel model, we might have two heterogeneous groups. The, I might take half the class, she takes half the class, and now we have a smaller, uh, better um, ratio of students to teacher so that we can get more rapid participation. So mm -hmm. it's, we might be teaching the exact same lesson, but in two separate groups. So instead of, um, let's say, you have 30 kids in the class, instead of 30 students waiting to have a turn to make a comment or ask a question, you have one teacher with 15, one teacher with 15. They turn their desks quickly to face opposite sides of the room or something and kind of group around. And now we may have two exact same lessons going on, but with smaller instruction. 
The benefit for doing that still in the classroom, though, instead of pulling kids out, is that I can hear what my colleague is saying. I can kind of tune in to what she's saying. And if I'm not quite clear about something, I can quickly access her. You know, Mrs. Jones, um, let me ask you a quick question. Or I can jump up from my seat and go whisper to her, clarify something, especially if I'm not as comfortable with the content because maybe I'm not uh, a content expert in that. And she can hear what I'm doing. So she can see a strategy perhaps I'm using with students and learn from me while I'm demonstrating that strategy with students so that the professional learning that's going on is a constant and the communication can be a constant. So there is that benefit of um, even within the small group work, we're still, the two teachers are still learning from each other. Yeah, well, I think that is that is great. Um, did I did I hear you correctly? You said that it was the parallel model. That's one of the models. Okay, mm -hmm. and then you also have the duet model. Is that the first example you gave? Uh, yes, uh, actually, I personally I talk about nine different models of co-teaching. Okay. Um, some some people out there talk about five models of co-teaching. Um, some people talk about level one and level two co-teaching. It's not so important uh, what you call it, I don't think. It's what it looks like in class. Um, so the names are not so critical. There are probably dozens of ways that two teachers could co-teach together. But I think of two primary models would be the duet model, which is where the two teachers really share everything, all the big upfront planning that happens before school ever even starts, figuring out what the curriculum's going to look like and the major projects and themes and units, et cetera. And then all of the week-to-week -week planning is shared, all of the instruction and assessment and reteaching is shared. So the duet model is very, um, really has wonderful parity. Both teachers are fully utilized at every step in the instructional cycle. That requires a lot of planning time. So if we can't do that model, because perhaps the specialist is assigned to teach with three or four different co-teachers, mm -hmm. and then that model becomes not realistic, then I suggest teachers or districts look at what I call the lead and support model, where the difference there is primarily in the stuff that happens before school starts or outside of the school day. The difference is that the gen ed teacher tends to do the big upfront planning and then would supply me with their outline of kind of where we're heading, these were the thoughts that I have about what to do here and there, and this is kind of how maybe I have taught this unit in the past. And then as a specialist, I'm still planning with them, but it's more of that week-to-week, -week, let's tweak this, let me try this differently here, how about if we break into groups for this or that. And so the planning is more in response to an outline or a big plan that's already in place but then the teaching is still shared in the class, as is the assessment. So in class, it may look very similar. It's what happens outside of class that's different. Then my other seven models, um, they all are kind of ingredients in one of those two other approaches. Um, and so how you group kids, whether it's a parallel grouping or a station grouping or a skills group, all of those grouping models, they're kind of ingredients. Um, 
uh, I also talk about a learning style model or a complementary skills model, adapting, etc. Those would all be ingredients that go into one of those two major approaches. Does that make sense? I know that's a lot of information. Yeah, it does. And, and what I really wanted to get at, which I think you did well, is is letting people know that there's not just, you know, one right way to do it, that there's a multitude of ways to implement this. And um, and that's what, what I think is valuable. And so, um, you know, what the examples you gave, I think, give a good idea of how how the different emphasis could be and then adding some other things in um, would would enhance or uh, change the co-teaching model uh, a little bit based on what the needs of the students are in the classroom. And what I would hate for people to walk away from is that there's there's only this one way to do it and this is only the only right way. And really it's it is going to be unique for just about every classroom to a certain extent and the and the big the big ideas are what carry over from classroom to classroom is that a fair summary yes very very well put thank you so um the the next part is what are some of the challenges that you face with students having two teachers and some of the common pitfalls that that teachers could run into in interacting with students just like in a family where you have a child and two parents, sometimes students can try to play one teacher against the other. So we have to make sure that we have a common approach to behavior management in the classroom, uh, common agreements about grading, about even things like whether students can get a pass to go to the bathroom or all of those things need to be talked about so that the students don't try to work one teacher and then go to work the other teacher. You know, one teacher says no, the other teacher says yes. That can set up some problems. So as long as they're communicating well, the two teachers, and have talked through some of those essential items, um, I have a list as an example in my co-teaching that works book of 16 questions that teachers should talk about before they start co-teaching. Um, if they've had those discussions, then they're probably set for not really having any problems with students. Um, we do strongly recommend that teachers use student surveys at the end of the year or even halfway through the year to find out how students are feeling about co-teaching so that we can get their input. Uh, generally, the student surveys are very positive, but sometimes students will say something that's unexpected. I have seen in a student survey from a district that I was not working with, they contacted me because they were concerned about some things that popped up in their student surveys. One of the things that popped up was students saying, I felt like I was in the dummies class. Mm-hmm. And if we see that in a survey, it means that we're not making sure we're having enough rigor in the class. We're not doing a good enough job about perhaps doing formative assessment and regrouping and doing some enrichment groups mm-hmm. as a result of that in class. So students can often tell us things that we may not have been aware of. But generally speaking, uh, if, if co-teaching is done well, students are very responsive. Yeah, and, and that brings up another um, a question that 
um, that I asked you on Twitter didn't ask here yet. And what is what is the ideal ratio of students with IEPs to students without IEPs? Generally speaking, we recommend no more than 30% of the class be on IEPs. Uh, of course, the smaller you can make that proportion, the better. But in terms of scheduling co-taught classrooms and staffing them, if you spread students too thin, then teachers, the specialists, have to be, be spread very thinly across multiple classrooms. And and maybe I'm then assigned to six or eight classrooms, and there's no way I can plan with that many co-teachers. So um, to make it possible to co-teach, districts often have to cluster students with IEPs into a classroom. 30% is considered kind of a maximum for best practice, but an important feature is that the remaining 70% should be a mixture of students who are on grade level and above grade level. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what sometimes happens is administrators see that there are going to be two teachers in this class and they say, oh, well, there's two teachers in that class. Let's put this kid in there because he's failing miserably. And let's put this kid in there because his behavior is out of control. And yeah. before you know it, that class becomes kind of a dumping ground for all the kids who might be struggling. So now we don't have good role models or a good range of uh, discussion and depth of thinking. And we lose the benefits of an inclusive class when we have to flat a range of kids in that class. Yeah, that's that's really important. Um, so the other thing that I want to know about that is um, what do you do to prevent that feeling of this is the dummies class? Um, it, you mentioned having high levels of rigor. Um, is that is that what you really focus on, or are there some other things that you do to make sure that students don't feel like they're in the, the dumb kid class? I think probably there are two, uh, three approaches that we use. First is to be communicating with parents right up front before the school year even starts that um, students will be in a co-taught class <clears throat> and that there are benefits for all kids in a co-taught class. So we need to be ready to sell that concept. Teachers need to, if they're approached over the summer in the grocery store by a parent who says, oh, my kid is going to be in a co-taught class, what do you think? We want teachers um, believing and ready to share that co-teaching is wonderful for all kids in the class, not just kids who may be struggling. Mm -hmm. um, so sending out that message so that everybody is excited that this is happening and that their kid is going to be in a co-talk class. So that would be one thing. The second thing is in the planning of the lessons, we have, uh, I have a form that I use for lesson planning. Everybody, of course, has different forms that they use. But on my form, there's a, a section that says, how will we challenge? And I can't leave that blank. It's way too uncomfortable to have a big blank space on my lesson plan. Mm -hmm. It kind of shouts out at me saying, wait a minute, you didn't build in something to challenge. So when we're planning the lessons and, and figuring out what can we do to make sure we're adding some challenge for kids who are ready for that next step or for something more, once we've got that planned, we're much more committed to doing something in class. And then the third piece, I think, has to do with those groups. When we pull apart groups, sometimes it's appropriate to do enrichment groups. 
I'll give you an example um, from a middle school math class that I co-taught several years back. What we realized is that usually as we were um, finishing up the kind of mini lesson component before going into having kids work on some math problems to practice, we could usually tell which kids were getting it right away. You know, they were very obviously understanding and answering the questions, and so we knew they were getting it. So what would typically happen is that the mat, my math co-teacher would have a small station off to the side where he would pull those three or four kids who were getting it. He would pull them right away as we sent kids to work on their worksheets, and he would do an enrichment lesson with them for about five minutes to get them started on something different, something a little more intriguing with some higher rigor. And then he would send them off to work uh, independently on those things, and by that point, I had been able to wander the room and assess which students weren't understanding the new skill, and then I would select those maybe three or four students and send them over to him at the station. Mm -hmm. They would transition over there, and then he could work with the students that weren't understanding. So that did a couple of things for us. One is that it did address those needs of kids who are ready for more, and they felt as if their needs were being addressed. But the second thing that it did is because we were always pulling different groups, it took away some of the stigma of being pulled off to the side, the negative right. stigma for those kids who might otherwise struggle because they weren't the only ones being pulled off to the side for a station. Now, we wouldn't do that every day, but again, that's one of the models that you might use as an ingredient to either the duet or the leader's support. Yeah, I, I really like that. Thank you for, for going into that. Um, what about students who are significantly below grade level? Um, is there a point where you say, you know, these kids are so far below grade level that they really only need the specialized instruction? Or could we do um, students who are below grade level, you know, two to three years, could they still handle being in a grade level class with the support of co-teaching. Absolutely, absolutely. Although, of course, we're always needing to make the decision on an individual basis, student by student, but students that are off grade level can still have their needs met in a co-taught class if the teachers are flexible and working together and planning, doing lots of small group work. Again, that's the importance of that 65% goal. I, I have a colleague who actually shoots for 75% small group work because that gives us more opportunity to provide some of that intensity. The specially designed instruction you mentioned, students shouldn't have to be pulled out to receive that. That's a really uh, important point that I'm glad you raised. The specially designed instruction should be occurring in the co-taught classroom. It's the responsibility of the special educator to make sure that they are providing specially designed instruction on a daily basis in that general education classroom. They're not just there as a second set of hands. So they have to be continually creative about how can I provide this to a specific student or maybe to the whole class, how can we weave in that specially designed instruction in class. So I think it's very possible. There are times, though, when there are students that we've determined uh, cannot have their needs met effectively, but we always want to start by trying to meet their needs in that least restrictive environment before deciding um, that, they, that they can't be. 
right? It's it's always going from least to more restrictive is the important direction to take. So generally speaking, we can be successful with those students. Great. So my last question is, I, I'm a principal, I want to start doing co-teaching. What should I start doing today or what what should, what should be my first step in going down the path of co-teaching? Uh, I think probably the first step is to get your teachers to have some kind of a common knowledge base. And as I mentioned, you could do that through a book study with a book like my co-teaching that works or another book um, or to do some video viewing and just start some discussion about is this what we want uh, and then how are we going to get there. Um, then I would say um, we want to try to establish some connections between co-teaching and other initiatives that might be in the district. So how does this relate to multi-tiered systems of support? Mm -hmm. How does this relate to our literacy initiative or whatever it might be so that teachers begin to understand those connections and don't see it as kind of an add-on? Um, you probably also want to identify any policies or procedures, job descriptions, or evaluation systems that might be affected by co-teaching. Um, Walk-through tools is another example that might be affected by co-teaching. How are we going to adjust our walk-through observation tool as appropriate? Um, how are we going to adjust our evaluation system for people that are co-teaching? Do we need to alter any of those kinds of things? So that's kind of setting it up. And then the, maybe one other piece we haven't talked about at all is to determine some tools for evaluating your co-teaching efforts, deciding those before you start to co-teach. Uh, co Are we going to use test data to look at that, um, engagement rates? Are we going to do some class-to-class -class comparisons? Um, one of the schools that I um, was familiar with in Georgia used absenteeism rates. Mm. to assess the value of their co-teaching, which I thought was a really interesting data point. So trying to have that in place before you start co-teaching rather than after a year or two has passed and then saying, hey, I guess we should probably evaluate <laughs> what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, then the next step, of course, is to provide some staff development for teachers so that they have uh, some clear information that's provided to them uh, along with some time to uh, complete some of these discussions, go through and identify roles and responsibilities, uh, identify models of grouping that they might want to do with their class and so forth. And I usually find that if districts can provide maybe a, a two-day training over the summer and uh, maybe one day for the two for the teams to plan and prep and, and get some stuff under their belt together. If they can do that over the summer before school starts, that can be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Anne, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I have learned a ton, and I know my listeners will benefit from it greatly as well. So thank you very much. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast. Please subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, and please feel free to give us a rating on Stitcher Radio or on iTunes so that we can help spread the word about how much we're learning in this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones.
Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.